Emily Elaine, and you're listening to Ninth Draft, the podcast for the strategic novelist. I'm super excited about today's episode. I've definitely put a lot of research and heart into it. But first, I think it's fun to warm up with a little writer's life chat. This week has been an interesting one for me. Last weekend was the launch of Ninth Draft Club, which was a huge success. So many amazing writers joined, and I'm so excited to get to know them all. But in the midst of the excitement, the anxious little hermit inside of me was freaking out. I'm a huge introvert, and I'm always scared of failing social interactions, like there's some kind of math quiz or something. In retrospect, I must have been a pretty hilarious sight. One minute I was excitedly... One minute I was excitedly commenting on members' posts, and the next I was curled up in a little ball, sipping coffee and wondering why I'm such an antisocial freak. Fortunately, many writers are akin to me in this way, so I'm not alone. I've been building the Ninth Draft Forum for months, so launching it was a huge accomplishment for me. Yet, for some strange reason, I felt like a total lazy failure this week. Becoming a full-time novelist is a mountainous goal, and sometimes... I make the mistake of pausing my climb to look up the mountain to see how far I have to go, and that turns me into a big ball of anxiety. Of course, in my silly self-detriment, I never bother to look over my shoulder to see how far I've come. No, heaven forbid I stop to celebrate. I mention this because it's something that many writers struggle with. Passionate writers are innately hard-working individuals, and I think we're often too hard on ourselves. So I'm preaching to myself when I say that it's important to stop and commend yourself for how far you've come. Anyhow, it's time to dive headfirst into today's topic. I'm actually really excited to share this research and perspective. I wish so badly that I had had this insight a few years ago when I first started writing The Born Weapons. I wouldn't have needed to write nine drafts, I'll tell you that. Today, we're examining the cause and effect trajectory of story. How do you know what needs to happen in your book? How do you ensure what happens in your book isn't just a list of random events and that the reader will actually care about what happens? Cause and effect may sound like an easy process to master, but it's not. The pitfall that many writers fall into is the belief that because their plot has logical cause and effect trajectory, it must be a good story. The problem is that story and plot work are two very different things. I love repeating this definition. A story is how our protagonist changes due to what happens to them in pursuit of a difficult goal. What happens is the plot work. It's only one element within the greater story picture. So today we're going to look into how the actual story, as in how the protagonist changes, actually incites and guides the trajectory of plot work cause and effect. In other words, we'll be learning how to craft the why, which is created by the protagonist's internal change, so that the what happens has meaning and stays on track with the story arc. I'm stoked to reel in my favorite piece of screen literature of all time, Goodwill Hunting. If you haven't seen it, Will is a self-destructive young genius who is throwing his life away until his defensive walls are broken through by a determined and highly sarcastic therapist who helps him defeat his inner demons and take hold of his life. Will's internal issue is that he's self-loathing, and therefore he's self-destructive in action. His self-loathing is the internal cause and his self-destructive actions are the external effect. 
His internal issue, his self-loathing, derives from a misbelief. We've discussed in a prior episode, this core misbelief is also called the fatal flaw or the false truth. Will's false truth is this. He subconsciously believes that the gruesome abuse he endured as a foster child was his fault. In Will's case, his false truth isn't conscious. It's a subconscious belief. Will's misbelief that it was his fault derives from the actual abuse. Later in the movie, before Sean, Will's therapist, pushes him to his big breakthrough, Will discloses that his foster father would lay a stick about an a wrench on the table and tell him to choose. This suggests that the foster father manipulated Will into believing that he was somehow responsible for his own abuse, suggesting Will's victim's guilt was especially ingrained into his subconscious mind. With this being said, there needs to be an event in your protagonist's life that is the seed of their false truth. In Will's case, this is not a singular event, but long-standing abuse. Still, this example of the stick, belt, or wrench makes this ongoing series of events into one specific example for the reader. Naturally, we can assume that this specific memory is one that affected Will greatly because it is the single memory he decided to disclose, and it represents the rest of his trauma. What can we learn from Will? That the beginning of the story cause and effect starts with an event your protagonist experiences that creates their false truth. It's important to note that the false truth is the belief on which our protagonist sets their goal. In Will's case, he wants to hide away in a lonely and lowly but safe lifestyle. He doesn't believe he's worthy of human connection or of pursuing a greater purpose, and he's afraid of taking these risks because he's afraid of getting hurt again. Every decision Will makes can be traced back to this internal goal of hiding, which was created by his false truth that it was his fault. Now, the external cause and effect, or plot work cause and effect, is initiated with a single action. Will solves the impossible equation on the whiteboard after hours, which will inspire the professor to bail him out of jail and take him under his wing, given that he goes to therapy. Will was a janitor at MIT, not because it was the only janitor job in Boston, but because he secretly longed to quit his self-destructive lifestyle and fulfill his potential. This is where the protagonist's internal conflict comes into play, when their false truth is met by the truth. Will's ultimate truth, a.k.a. the theme, is that it's not his fault, and he does deserve to take charge of his life. The truth comes to him at first in the form of a secret desire, and his therapist Sean helps him unbury this desire. This goes to show that every single action your protagonist takes derives from their internal conflict. Our protagonist's internal conflict is their evolution from their state of false truth to truth. Therefore, their course of action reflects their internal change. There is a stigma around emotion. I'm sure many of us have been told, oh, don't be so emotional, or oh, don't be so dramatic at least once in our lives. Emotionality is perceived as a wild animal inside of us that serves no practical purpose. 
But the truth is that emotion is our brain's way of prioritizing ele- But the truth is that our emotions are our brain's way of prioritizing every single element of our lives. Say you hit your head one day and wake up in the hospital unable to feel a minuta of emotion. You're told you've suffered severe brain damage and you experience utter indifference. Now, your intelligence and memory are perfectly intact. You can remember exactly what you ate for breakfast the day before, and you can solve any equation put before you. But you can't make a decision. How do you know whether it's more important to make it to your daughter's dance recital or stay late at work to finish that last bit of paperwork? How do you know whether or not it's worth it to bicker with the barista over a little bit of cream? Emotional intelligence is just as important as technical intelligence, if not more so. Ever read or seen Forrest Gump? Forrest has the emotionality of life figured out. He knows that people and experiences are important. Sure, he couldn't do fifth grade math, but he knows how to love and he knows how to live life to the fullest. This is why your protagonist's emotional plane begets the plot work. So, before you can begin outlining the plot work cause and effect, you must first understand the long-standing emotional cause and effect within your protagonist. You must first understand your story, how your protagonist is affected, more specifically, how they change by what happens to them in pursuit of their goal. Their goal isn't simply external. Let's say, to go to Juilliard and become a musician. It's internal, too. To become a musician because it's her dream and it's what her mother, who died of cancer three years ago, secretly wanted her to pursue. See, her family is very traditional and her father is urging her to marry the doctor's son once she's out of high school. But she's got her mother's spirit, a free spirit, and she doesn't want to end up like her mother, trapped in the confines of an unhappy marriage, never to pursue the career for which her heart beats. See what I did there? Now let me ask you, which was more interesting to hear? The plot goal, aka the what, to go to Juilliard, or the internal goal with all the juicy details about why she wants to go to Juilliard? Our character, let's call her Julie, will reference her internal goal whenever... Our character, let's call her Julie, will reference her internal goal whenever any external conflict arises. And here's a little secret. The reader will, too. Say Julie's father tells her she's forbidden from going to Juilliard. As a reader, without insight into Julie's internal goal, we wouldn't care. Even if the writer describes how Julie's cheeks were streaked with tears, we still wouldn't care. From the time we are babies... Our brains are constantly seeking cause and effect connections. If this, then that. It's how we make sense of the world. It's how we determine how to survive. If I cross the street blindfolded, I will get hit by a car. If I sneak out at night, my parents will ground me. As social creatures, our brains are also constantly trying to make sense of other people. This takes us back to the entire purpose of story to allow us to experience vicariously through the protagonist and therefore learn how to safely navigate the social and dangerous world through them.
With this being said, our brains are desperate to make sense of why the protagonist chooses to take the risks, despite the possible effects. Say Julie runs away with her secret boyfriend the day after high school graduation on the promise that he'll drive her to New York and they'll split the rent so she can attend Juilliard. Julie barely knows this boyfriend, and he's five years older than her, so this is a huge risk to her well-being. But with insight into her internal goal, we understand why she's taking this risk. We understand why her cause is worth the possible effect. Maybe her boyfriend turns out to be abusive, and she ends up homeless, couch hopping in New York, desperately trying to achieve her dream. Maybe that nagging voice in the back of her head, the false truth her father instilled in her, is becoming louder and louder. You're a woman. Your purpose is to stay home and raise a family. Maybe when Julie was little, she messed up at a musical recital because she was nervous that her father unexpectedly attended despite his disdain for her dream. Embarrassing herself on stage went to prove her father's point. She'd never be as good of a violinist as that brilliant sixth grade boy. But oh, she can remember how her mother came into the room that night and told her how even Einstein flunked school, that sometimes people don't recognize brilliance, and that she had her whole life to prove herself. Should she stay in New York, homeless and at high risk, or should she go home to the safe entrapment of her father's house? She could play on the street corner and make enough to stay in a hostel, but, oh, she couldn't afford her school books or even nice clothes to interview for a scholarship. How will she even pay for Juilliard? Her father won't help. But if she gives up now, she'll be trapped in a marriage with that dull, lifeless medical student fated to cook dinner and clean house and bear children she'll never want. She daydreams out the car window about being on the stage. The lights are soft. She can hear the collective breath of the crowd. It holds as her violin strings first touch. Do you feel the emotional tension pulling her towards opposing decisions? We empathize with Julie because we have the insight into why she does what she does. Chances are, we're thinking to ourselves that we would have run away to New York too. When we have clear insight into the protagonist's why, their internal world, we eagerly anticipate the plot work cause and effect. We constantly search for clues. Julie saw a lovely suit in a shop window when she first arrived in New York. Will she buy that suit and wear it to the scholarship interview? Does that mean she's going to stay in New York? God help me, I hate that guy she's arranged to. Please tell me she stays and goes to Juilliard. But wait, how is she going to afford that suit? Every detail in your narrative is a clue. Shavok, a renowned playwriter, once wrote in a letter, One must never place a loaded pistol on the stage if it isn't going to go off. It's wrong to make false promises. Since our readers are constantly searching for clues to anticipate the trajectory of our story's cause and effect, we cannot include details that will lead them astray. How disappointing would it be if Julie had raved in thought about how much she loved the suit in the window, but never wore it? In fact, she never went to the scholarship interview at all. Since our brains are wired to recognize cause and effect patterns, we are appalled when the story fails to abide by this natural law. Every question in our stories must be answered. Every cause must be followed up by an effect. 
and it all ties back to the protagonist's internal why, their goal, which derives from their conflict, which derives from their false truth, which started with an event in their life. Which ties us back to the craft. When you are deciding on what your protagonist does, you must first ensure that you understand specifically why she does it. Maybe our book opens with Julie back in her hometown being drug around the mall by her aunt on the hunt for a wedding dress. She's nauseous when she tries it on and looks in the mirror to see the embodiment of lost potential and the possibility of 50 depressing years in captivity. When she sees that woman's suit, so sleek and professional in New York, well, she has butterflies in her stomach because she can see how its deep blue fabric contrasts beautifully with the golden stage lights. So eventually, she takes action. She buys it. Why? Not because she needs a professional outfit for the interview, but because of what it means to her. It's a reminder that she must pursue her dream no matter what stands in her way, because she is worthy of pursuing the life she's always dreamed of, and the life her mother wanted her to have. I hope my hypothetical story has illuminated my points. I rather like it. I think I might jot down the idea and write the book in another life. I have, like, 25 other books to write first. No wonder I'm a caffeine addict. Before we go, it's time for my weekly shout-out to a fellow writer. This week, I want to rave over Jason Kilgore. He writes a variety of genres, including horror, and he just released a collection of short horror stories. I bought his book off Kindle, and so far his stories are intriguing and bone-chilling. It takes a lot to freak me out, but I have to admit that I was pleasantly horrified. Jason is definitely a talented writer, and I highly suggest you check out the link to his new book below. If you are a member of Ninth Draft Club, I'll talk to you soon. If you want to check out the club, the link is also below. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a productive and enjoyable week. See you next time. In the meantime, happy writing. Mm-hmm.